by the major portion of our worship, which is the ministry of the Word. Glad to see, uh, I was glad to see Carol back this morning. Carol, where are you? Right there. Good to have you back. God bless you. From some folks here from California this morning, we're glad you're here. Brother Rick, it's good to see you back. Amen. Amen, that's good. All right, turn with me to John chapter 1. We continue our study in uh, John's Gospel, which we began about three months ago. We are now in verses 14 to 18. And last week we started verse 14. Today is the second part of that verse. Uh, Just not enough time to develop much of what is in this verse in one week. And so I, I, I went back to revisit some of these things that we find in verse 14. I'll read 14 through 18 and then we'll go back. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day for the opportunity to come and to gather and to worship, to sing the songs of praise and worship, to to bring our prayers before the throne, to give of that which you have so abundantly provided for us, uh, and now to, to be ministered to through your eternal word. We thank you for these things. We ask, Lord, that you would bless this time of ministry of the word, and may it... Uh, Teach us, convict us, speak to us in such a way that our lives would be drawn closer to Christ and that we would be more like Him in our lives. We pray these things in His name. Amen. So we're looking at the Lord's incarnate being here in this passage. We found last week that the eternal Son of God vested himself with human flesh, and lived among those whom he had created. John and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of these things and of the life and the glory of his person. Verse 14 says, And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us. That's pretty much what we looked at last week. This week I want us to center on the latter part of that verse. Which says, and we have 
seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, you could spend, we could spend months, uh, tearing this verse apart. Uh, it is so full. And, uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna sort of skim it this morning as we're moving through. I want you to notice the words in verse 14 where John says, we have seen these things. We have seen them. This not only speaks of John as an eyewitness to the things of which he describes, but it also speaks more clearly of how they witnessed it. Notice that word seen. The word seen here in the verse means to gaze at something admiringly. It means to look at something so that it morally and mentally stimulates one and impresses them in an astonishing way. So what is John saying? He is saying that he and those with him were dazzled. They were astonished by the life and the glory that was in Jesus. They were astonished. The same word is used in Mark chapter 16 verse 14 where Jesus appears to the eleven after his resurrection. And this is what it says. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him. Same word. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about the women. He's talking about the women who went to the tomb. And they saw the Lord. They were astonished. They were dazzled by what they saw. And they ran to tell the disciples. And the disciples did not believe it at first. It also appears in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. Turn there with me. Acts 1, verse 11. As the disciples were with the Lord Jesus, as He, just before His ascension back to the Father, it says in verse 11, The angels said to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now, the word looking here is not the word. It says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They were astonished. They were dazzled by what they saw at the ascension of the Lord. They're looking at him and all of a sudden he began to rise up off of the earth Up into the air and into the clouds. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was standing and saw somebody do that, I think I'd be kind of dazzled. I think I'd want to see that again. These disciples were astonished. They were like spectators in a theater and Jesus was the main actor and star. I remember years ago, we took a trip down the Ocean Highway in Australia. We stood on the cliffs 
uh, near Port Campbell, 300 feet off the water, in a place called the Blowhole. It's where the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean meet. And the currents of the Pacific and the currents of the Indian Ocean clash at the blowhole. And it causes the water to spew up out of the, the ocean. And it keeps on going and it just crashes and spews. And I stood there and watched it oh, for, I don't know how long we stood there and watched that thing. We were dazzled by it. We were astonished by it. This is the idea of the word. They didn't just glance at him momentarily. They watched him searchingly. It was with intelligence. It was with wonder. Why? Because glory, glory, they were seeing glory that was uniquely his. There are a few things in this world that capture the attention and admiration in this way. And even though we cannot see Jesus with our physical eyes, we can see Him through the pages of Scripture. We can gaze at His beauty and His glory through the eyes of faith just as they did. And we are astonished. We are bedazzled by the glory that is His. Now last week, we began to look at this glory, and I felt that it was not, had not been done justice. We talked about the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud that covered the, the tabernacle in the wilderness and all the camp of the, of Israel. We talked about the fire, uh, the, there would have been a, a bright, intensely bright light like the sun shining today that you cannot look at, that would have hovered over the mercy seat in the tabernacle and the cloud would have come up from that light and covered the entire camp of Israel. And they saw it. They saw it every day. And at night it turned into a pillar of fire. And they saw that at night. And every day the cloud was there. And every night the fire was there. And it, and it, when it moved, they moved. And when it stopped, they stopped. It refers to the radiance of God's glory that appeared in the midst of God's people, Israel. It was God with them as they sojourned. John says that same glory that dwelt among the people of Israel was now dwelling among the people in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the glory in the wilderness. And He is the glory dwelling among us today. When Jesus came, the Shekinah Glory of God did not need to be there because He was there. It is likely, as we mentioned last week, that John is remembering the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the Lord illuminated before him brighter than the sun. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And He has that exact imprint on His nature. 
Now the word glory is the Greek word doxa. That's where we get our word doxology. Sometimes I remember growing up as a kid, the church would be would end and we would sing a doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below and so on. This word doxa means to think. Interesting, isn't it? It means to think. Originally, it was a word that was used in secular Greek to indicate an opinion that someone had. People think, they speak, opinions. And so, a human opinion, from the secular use of this word, a human opinion is often shifty, uncertain, and many times it is based on error. I mean, we know that. It tends to pursue its own unworthy safety. Many times. The true and ideal glory of man. The opinion that man originally had in his thought processes was found in the garden before the fall. When Adam and Eve thought nothing except the glory of God and his creation in the garden while they were in the garden. Adam's opinions were purely based on God, but all that was lost when Adam sinned and plunged mankind into a fallen, lost state. And as with so many Greek words of the time, this word doxa slowly began to become a biblical word. So much so that now the the word glory is primarily used with reference to God or to religious things. In that sense, it relates to the idea of that which is worthy, that which is honorable, that which is admirable or Impressive and praiseworthy. That's why we sing songs about God and His works. That's why we meet together and from the Scriptures find what He did, what He wants us to do. This is all so that we can formulate our thinking to maintain opinions that are God-based and Christ-centered. That's why it's so important for you young people to, to, to get and maintain a biblical worldview of how things are supposed to be. Because if you don't, you will end up with a worldview that comes from the world. And it will be skewed. Your opinions will be shady. You'll be confused. So when we 
form these opinions based upon what scriptures teach us. When we form these opinions, we begin to know God and as the one who is worthy and honorable in his person. And that brings about thoughts of his worthiness. It also puts us in our proper place. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. That's what happens when you gain a biblical opinion of things that are happening in the world and in you. It also relates to how we think about his promises. To be what God intended will be glory. To be where God is will be glory. To think about God as He purposed will be glory. Listen to Jesus' prayer. It relates directly to this. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What was he praying for? He was praying for that centrality where he was with the Father before the world was created. When there was nothing but God in his triune person. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. For what reason? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Listen, our whole existence in eternity When we're no longer in this world and we're in heaven, our whole existence will be thinking and formulating opinions about the God who saved us and who He is and all of His great attributes. That will be the opinions that we have. We are to begin to formulate those things now and carry them on into eternity. As the sun's brightness causes the stars to disappear, so God's sun will outshine everything else in eternity. It causes the grandest thoughts of self to vanish. It repeals all other things that we would call glory in this life. Jesus said, In Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your lights shine before others so that you may, they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that they formulate opinions about who He is. Do you ever have anybody say to you, my, how great your God must be. My, how powerful He must be. How big he must be. How good he must be. And in your darkest moments when you're suffering the most. And you make much of God. It shows them how good and how great and how powerful he is. 
The glory that Jesus demonstrated in His earthly life was the same glory as that of the Father because they possessed the same essence and nature. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10 verse 30, claiming equality with God. We know this is the case because the Jews were trying to kill Him. And the reason, according to John chapter 5 verse 10, because he was making himself equal with God. When Stephen was about to be stoned to death, he looked up and saw that glory that belongs to Jesus. Acts seven fifty five, And he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God and Jesus. There you are. They're connected together. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now the word can mean all kinds of things. It can mean a manifestation of light or radiance or brightness. It can mean a manifestation of God's excellence and power. It can mean uh, His reputation. Or humanly speaking, that which gives honor or praise. It can mean a state characterized by honor. and It can mean have to do with angelic powers, which are glorious. It's spoken of as in Jesus' first coming in Luke chapter 2. It's spoken of in Jesus' second coming in Matthew chapter 16. And it's spoken of as the saints' future glorification in Romans chapter 5. When Jesus returns, it will be with the glory of the all-conquering Christ. The Apostle Paul writes that we wait for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, that glory is going to slay all His enemies. It will take that long. Even in the end, during the tribulation, the thing that is of most importance to God is that He received glory through the works, through His works, and for who He is. And I thought, I thought this is really an interesting concept. That God is going to bring about a time on earth that is going to be the worst time ever in history so that He brings about glory for Himself. And I thought a little exercise through the book of Revelation might be helpful. So I want you to follow with me. I've listed all the verses there in your notes. But I want you to turn to each one with me. We're going to look at um, how many times and in what ways God's glory is mentioned in the book of Revelation. So turn with me to chapter 1, verse 6. This is Christ's message to the seven churches of Asia. And he writes that he has made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Some take this to be that the church is to bring in the kingdom of God and take dominion, do that by taking dominion over the earth. That is not what this is teaching. That's called dominionism. The church is not going to usher in the kingdom. In fact, things are going to get a lot worse for the church as the end draws near. So if this was a message for the church then, that we have been made a kingdom of priests and, and before God and the God the Father, then it was a, it's a message for us now. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Here we have, we have this great scene around the throne. I, I love this, this passage. This is the clearest look of what, of what takes place in heaven that you can just about can find. So it's the scene around the throne. And what we have here is a, is a description that goes beyond our capability to, to picture it properly in our minds. You have, you have lightnings and thunder and rumblings. You have uh, fire and you have the living creatures around the throne with all the eyes and the wings and, and the, their faces and heads, the uh, four different <clears throat> views of their heads and faces. And you have the elders before the throne uh, casting down their crowns and praising God. Can you picture that? I've seen some artist descriptions of it, but they don't really, I don't think, do justice. Notice what he says in verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, <clears throat> are full of eyes all around and within. Oof, what, how, what does that look like? They have eyes all over them and inside them. And, I mean, uh. Within and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, they are constantly giving Glory. What is that? It's the opinion of the angels. Angels can think. Think far better than we can. And they, they have this opinion formulated in them of who God is. We see them in Isaiah. Flying around. Crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His what? Glory. Turn to chapter 5. Look at verse... uh, No, no. Down to verse 11. The elders around the throne cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you are, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So, the elders are giving God praise for His creation. And so should we. 
We formulate our opinions about God's works. And one of His works is He created everything. And our biblical viewpoint, our biblical opinion overrides overrides every other opinion of how things became to be. Chapter 5, verse 12. This is the chapter of the seven-sealed scroll. And the innumerable, innumerable angels shouting, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Look at chapter, look at verse 13. And now, every creature in the universe, think about it. This morning's singing was, was really, really fantastic from this vantage point up here. I could hear your voices raised. But think about every creature in the universe in unison, together. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, now this not only is human beings, but this is every other creature as well. You think they can't talk and praise God? They will. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb blessing and honor and glory and might. Be forever and ever. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. Another unified praise of glory to God by people and angels. Verse 12, they were saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Listen, when you've got something so magnificent, so high, so praiseworthy, that everything else pales and and runs away, except that one thing, you do not tire to give it praise and glory. That's what's happening. Chapter 11, verse 13. Very mysterious passage. About the two witnesses that will appear during the tribulation. The latter <clears throat> part of the tribulation. <clears throat> and there was a great earthquake at that time. Verse 13 says. And at that hour there was a great earthquake. Oh, by the way this is, uh, this is after the two witnesses have been murdered by the Antichrist. And they come back to life after laying in the streets. And their bodies rotting for two days. They come back to life and uh, are caught up, ascend up into heaven. Now we look at the verse. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. This is, I think the city is Jerusalem. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory To the God of heaven. 
Now, I don't understand all of the intricate events in that, but I know that this is what it says, and they're going to give glory to God. Chapter 14, verse 7. This is one of my favorite passages. I cannot even imagine what this is going to be like. They're angels. These angels are, are giving out messages. And, and so you have this, finally in verse 7, you have this angel and he flies through the air and he preaches the gospel. Now listen to what it says. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. This is the real, this is the last real effort for the gospel to go out to the world and it goes out by an angel. And many people will hear it. In fact, everyone on earth will hear it in their own language. And many will be saved. Chapter 16, verse 9, this is this is the bold judgments of uh, Revelation. This is the fourth bowl judgment. And it is a judgment of fierce, scorching heat. Notice what it says, verse 9. And they and men, it's talking about people on earth, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent or give Him glory. See, when people repent, they give glory to God. And when they don't, they curse Him. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Hmm. Glory belongs to God and no one else. Chapter 21, last, last ones here. This chapter speaks of the, the new Jerusalem, the city of God that will, He will create and will come down out of heaven, hover above the earth. It will be 1,500 miles square, have many, many levels in it. Streets will be made of gold. The gates of the city will be made of one solid pearl. Uh, it's going to be quite a thing to see. And he carried me away, verse 10, carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 23, it speaks of God's glory being the light of future eternity. Listen to what it says. And this city, that is the city of Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp 
is the Lamb. Jesus is going to be the light of it. Be no more sun. Be no more moon. We won't need it. Christ will be the light. Hmm. Glory then primarily speaks of praise, adoration, honor that is given to God through Christ for His radiance and brightness and majesty and splendor that is given to His name and His person. And there are is where our spirits are filled with the opinions of who He is. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. He fills us with who He is through the Scriptures, by Christ. And we see God for who He is. And we give Him glory. We give Him praise. We give Him honor. So what has beholding His glory done in your life? Hmm. When John saw the glory of Christ, he fell like fell down dead, like he was dead. He couldn't even look up. When the three disciples saw his glory on transfiguration, they said, "We don't want to leave here. This is this is a good place. Let's just stay here." What has it done for you? Notice this last phrase. Full of grace and truth. Well, we're not, we know this, we're going to see a lot about that through John's gospel, uh, because John speaks a great deal about truth and grace. And, uh, so I'm just going to touch, touch on this briefly in the next seven minutes. Let me just start by saying that the world we live in denies the truth of God and lives on the false notion that they are here and exist by their own self-determination. And that is not true. No one lives or is here by their own self-determination. Did you have anything to do with being born? Not a single one of you, not me, not anyone had anything to do with the fact that we were born. And yet, people act like they do. They do not realize that every moment and every breath they breathe is allowed and given by the common grace of God upon His creation. If they got what they deserved, they would all be in hell now. We too. But they're not. It is by God's kind favor that they live and move and have their being. But every day... Every day, men and women, young people, boys and girls, exchange the truth of God for lies. That all culminate in the one huge lie. That man is the center of the universe and he chooses his own destiny. But this is not what John is talking about here. This is probably, this statement, full of grace and truth, is probably the most theological statement found in John's gospel. 
It speaks of the manifestation of the divine attributes of God, of the invisible God in a person. As the only unique Son from the Father, He is full of grace and truth. These are two attributes of Christ that are most intricately connected to salvation. Salvation can only be acquired, hear me carefully, can only be acquired by believing God's truth, and that truth is received by God's grace. No one is saved any other way. This has been the message of the church from the very beginning. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Acts 15 verse 11. But we believe, this is the Jerusalem council. But we believe that we will be saved, how? Through the grace of our Lord Jesus as the Gentiles will. Everybody's saved the same way. Acts 18 verse 27. Apollos, speaking of Apollos and his ministry to the believers, it says, And when he breached, when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Acts 20, 24, Paul's message In Acts 20, I do not count myself of any value or as precious to myself, if only I might finish my course and the ministry I've received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Romans 3.24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ. Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the, for, uh, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us by, to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gives us in Christ. We can say that God is gracious to us. He has exhibited that grace in the person of Christ. He exhibited it in Himself. When we were helpless, sinful creatures lost in the blackness of our own sin with no ability To get out of that hard situation, God's grace came and rescued us, sought us out, ran us down, drew us to himself, and saved us by his grace. But because of man's willful disobedience to God, God, God's judgment came upon the human race. Listen, God... God owes nothing to the human race. Nothing. We live in a we live in a world where everybody thinks they're owed something by somebody. God owes nothing to us. He would have been just and right as soon as Adam took a bite of that fruit, whatever it was. He would have been just and right to have grabbed Adam and Eve up and tossed them in the lake of fire. He would have been just and holy to have done that. 
Not a single human being to ever walk the face of the earth again. And he would be just as just and right to allow billions and billions of people to be born and grab them up and toss every single one of them in the lake of fire. He would be just and holy to do that. But he didn't. And it was all because of grace. All because of grace. Is it any wonder that John Newton would write, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me? I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. These things are true because they come from the character of a God who is all truth and cannot lie. Do a search and see how many times Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, or I am telling you the truth. This is the truth. So when you take all these things and you put it all together, what you have is a God giving, is God giving fallen mankind His truth and His grace in a person who is so full of the qualities of divinity and of God that anyone who repents and believes in Him would be saved. Saved not by His own merit. Not by anything he could do or ever accomplish. But simply saved because of God's favor and gift upon them. Is that you today? Have you been saved like that? I know most of you. And I can say for most of you, yes, I believe you have. There may be someone that hasn't. I say to you, if not, flee to the cross. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Repent of your sins and find in Christ salvation and heaven and forgiveness and love. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's day. And we thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. For the grace that you have given us that we did not deserve. Could never have deserved. And we thank you, Lord. You are good and you are merciful. And we are your children. And today we give you thanks. And praise, and we honor you, for you are worthy to receive it. And one day when we stand with the myriads in heaven, we will cry out with them, glory to our God. He is full of grace and truth. These things we pray in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.